Happy almost Jewish New Year. Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine in which we talk about the news of the Jews. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, kicking it here in the Trump studios with senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Shalom, yo. Shalom. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi. Later in the show, we'll be talking with columnist and Jewish man of letters Avi Shafrin, whose job is to explain the so-called ultra-Orthodox to the rest of us. And our non-Jewish guest of the week, our Gentile of the week, is writer Alex Sheshanoff who moved to a small tropical island to read all the books he blew off in college, and then he wrote a book about it. All right, but first, in the waning days of year 5775, some last shofar blasts of news. At Dartmouth College, over 500 students have signed a petition demanding kosher food in the dining halls. Anti-Semitic attacks on two synagogues in San Antonio, Texas. Hillary Clinton's secret emails contain something about gefilte fish, though I can't really remember. Does anyone remind me what? It was in an email titled Gefilte Fish, and the subject, I mean, the email body said, what are we doing about this? And it was in reference to a carp shipment being stuck in Israel before the high, before before Passover, <laughs> which Tablet CEO Rosenberg cracked open because he remembered that Michael Oren had written about the same incident in his memoir. So we're just endorsing Hillary but now. But now we're like, just sending emails that say, Gefilte Fish, where are we on this? Where are we on this? In other news of food I won't eat... Hydrox cookies, the not-as-good version of Oreos that many observant Jews were forced to eat until Oreos got their kosher certification a few years back, are going back into production. They're going to be marketed as some sort of retro food. The new film version of Amos Oz's A Tale of Love and Darkness debuted in Tel Aviv. This is which, impo- is, which is the film version of a Hydrox cookie. <laughs> Have you seen it yet? No, but come on. But we know. But you're not mentioning who directed it. That, I was going to that. I was going to say. That is why the reason why we care. stale and foul tasting. <laughs> this is important only because it's directed by the divine Miss P, Natalie Portman. Oh, lordy, lordy, Who has lordy. not responded to any of the Oppenheimer family's Shabbat invitation dinners. She's invited to dinner and so much more. She's Unorthodox's patron saint. That's right. She's two-thirds of and Unorthodox's patron saint. And finally, the British press has accused Israeli soccer player, excuse me, football player, Tal Ben Chaim, of using Israeli dark magic to jinx Welsh player Gareth Bale, causing him to miss a penalty kick in a game on Sunday. Before we discuss a few important topics in depth, Liel, you are Israeli. Is there such a thing in Israeli football as Israeli dark magic? Uh, I cannot talk, uh, confirm or deny any of this dark magic talk. I think he totally cast a Kabbalistic spell on that player. Yeah, be careful. You're sitting right across from me. I'm glad they're using their black magic for something really important. (laughs) (laughs) But in greater depth this week, there was a really, really potent op-ed in the New York Times by Sarah Hirshhorn uh, saying that Israeli settler violence and extremism is basically being imported from America and that American congregations and Jews have an obligation to decry it and oppose it left and right. Um, We all read that. Stephanie, what do you think? So specifically, she's saying that some of the most recent attacks by settlers have been actually settlers who are American. You know, they moved to the West Bank a few years ago. Aren't we happy that the spirit of the frontier is alive and well in American soul? (laughs) I mean, it seems so American to be like, you guys can do your thing. I'm going to be the best extremist settler and I'm going to do like the craziest things. And it's just like, I don't know. You know, the fascinating thing, do you remember the, the, the last scene in Ghostbusters 
where Gozer the demon forces them to choose the form of the destructor. Sure. And the only thing they could think of is the state of Marshmallow Man. Because they're trying to think of the least... They're trying to think of nothing. Of the most innocuous. And then... And then they think of the most innocuous thing that they can, which is that demon. So, to me, this is kind of what the, the role the settlers fill in, in, you know, liberal Jewish life. You know, it's the one figure onto which you could just transport all of your just sort of like fears and guilt and all of your ideological, you know, mishigas could be kind of like thrown magically at this one person type or one archetype uh, that is the, the the epitome of all, you know, liberal Jewish guilt and evil. Like we can hate the settlers. The settlers, not just that we could hate the settlers. The settlers are the worst thing, which really kind of baffles me. I mean, look, if you really believe that if we tomorrow took every single Jewish settler out of Judea and Samaria, and magically transported them, you know, to Maine. Um, if you really believe that that would solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there is a bridge that I would love to sell you not too far from here. It's just, it's this form of magical thinking that really baffles the mind. But that's not her point. I, don't, I mean, her point is that we're always calling on other groups to decry and disown their own zealots. And we have a real zealotry problem and it's not just it's not this homegrown Israeli these seventh generation Israelis like yourself Liel right no, we're who, all good right we're they're all good all it's in fact pure. crazies from Brooklyn who in many times right. were emotionally but, disturbed but Mark, in Brooklyn Mark, and went to a small town where in the West Bank where the Israeli government would set them up with extra cheap housing you're right and look the other way when they incinerate young Arab children but at the same time uh, what the op-ed slash much of the press in general doesn't tell you is that two days or a day after that terrible attack, there's actually a huge ad taken out in every single Israeli newspaper, the headline of which was Thou Shall Not Kill, which was signed by dozens and dozens and dozens of settler rabbis, including some of the quote-unquote more hardcore, less lenient ones among them. There is actually, you know, a very, very, very wide discrepancy of opinion and the kind of violence that you're seeing is by far an absolute minority. It is met with the harshest steps, which the op-ed actually, you know, mentions by the Israeli government. Compare that for all those who say, well, how can you, you know, decry the Palestinians or criticize the Palestinians? Compare that to, you know, murderers coming to Ramallah and receiving a hero's welcome and having streets named after them. It is not the same thing. There is a whole lot of context that is being ignored because settlers are seen as sort of like, you know, prima facie like evil. What was interesting to me is that some I'm of not those... supporting settlements here. I, I have to say that. I, I would love for there to be some sort of internationally supervised agreement by which we could disengage from the West Bank. But while we do have settlers, can we, can we please just treat them like normal human beings? No. You know? Um, in somewhat lighter news, uh, the Pennsylvania state legislature is scheduled to go into session this year on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, prompting at least one legislator to cry insensitivity. This is actually a favorite topic of mine, the, the mass cancelization. Cancelization. That's a word. <laughs> I'm a product of the public school. The mass cancellation of stuff, schools, legislative sessions, you name it, for Jewish holidays. I actually think that... um. It's it's fine if the Pennsylvania state legislature wants to meet on a Jewish holiday. I think that the Jewish legislators could take the day off and say we're observing our religion and just don't hold any major votes. Here's a rule. If you cannot get a challah more than five miles from your house, your state should not cancel anything for a Jewish holiday. Can we agree on what that? What if it's like a gluten-free area? Well, yeah. I think, well, the tough thing is it's fall. So that means you have 
Rosh Hashanah for two days. You have Yom Kippur the next week. You have following that, you have Sukkot, which, you know, there's the first two days and the last two days. So there's Simcha Torah, Shemini Yetzirah, all of which I know since um, I work at Tablet and have all of those days off. And you but, grew up on Long Island. Yes. But, I mean, the, between September and October, there's a lot of days that, you know, an observant person might have to take off from work. But um, the observant people's kids aren't in school. So I think the issue is you gotta you got to, like, pick and choose. Like, you have to say, like, I'm taking Yom Kippur. I'll, I'll, I'd like the first day of Rosh Hashanah off, but I, I'll accept that I don't get, maybe I won't get it. Sukkot, like, sorry, probably not going to get that. Should the so Gentile... It's like a lottery show. It should be sort of like a... Yeah, everyone gets to choose, like, their top five. It's right. like, I want five like days of Hanukkah. It should okay. be like a draft. Here's the thing. New Haven, My Connecticut. fantasy holiday league. Live on TV, which days do you get off? Like, please let it beat Som Gedalia. Please. Ah, Som Gedalia. Sukkot's too. Um... Here's the thing. In New Haven, Connecticut, where three of my children are currently enrolled in the public schools, they are taking Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur off. I don't think there are 100 Jewish kids in the New Haven public schools. Once upon a time, there were lots of them and there were lots of Jewish teachers. There are almost no Jewish kids left in the schools and there are almost no Jewish teachers. But nobody wants to say, Jews, we're taking back your holidays. You're going to have to skip school. You're going to have to take an unexcused absence. And the rest of us are going to go to school. Nobody that is except for the parents of the Jewish kids <laughs> right. are like, please take back our please, holidays. We will please pay whatever leave. you want. Because <laughs> my, my kid goes to a day school, to a Jewish you know, day school. And I think she is does not have more than two consecutive days between now and like 2018. It's, it's unbelievable. So yeah, take back every single holiday. It's Three hours in Yom Kippur really because it's the beginning of the school year. So you're like... All of a sudden, have all these gaps right. in when you're at school, and it's just it's it's an inconvenient time. And yeah, my name is Mrs. Smith. I'll be your teacher, and I'll see you in after Kishrei is done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in Cheshvan. <laughs> All right. Our first guest, our Jewish guest this week, is Avi Shafran. He is director of public affairs for Agudath Israel, an organization of fervently orthodox, some would say ultra-orthodox. We're going to discuss Jewish congregations. He also writes columns for Tablet, The Forward, and elsewhere, often explaining ultra-orthodoxy to the rest of us. Welcome, Avi. Thank you so much. So I'm going to start with this one. You have written saying we have to stop saying ultra-orthodox. First of all, who are the people we're talking about, and why do we have to stop calling you ultras? Well, first of all, we have to rename this program Orthodox. Okay. Right <laughs> off the bat. Okay, not even old Orthodox, just yeah. Orthodox will be fine. You're the only non unorthodox <laughs> one right. here today. Well, um, the reason I, I object personally, I'm speaking personally throughout this whole thing, even though I work for the I go to you Israel. You're not speaking on behalf of anybody. Right, um, only me. And even that I might deny eventually. <laughs> but, um, the, the word ultra carries a connotation, at least in many people's minds, of being beyond the, uh, the pale. You talk about an ultra-conservative. You're not talking about uh, uh, William F. Buckley Jr. You're talking about, you know, crazies, about ultra-liberal. You're not talking about uh, the, Demo- the average Democratic Party candidate for office. You're talking about somebody who has, uh, shall we say, fringe beliefs. We don't see maintaining the sort of orthodox lifestyle, Jewish lifestyle, that our parents and grandparents uh, led as being in any way beyond the pale. We see it as somewhat normative, traditional. I would, if we could claim the word traditional, if you had to make a distinction between uh, Haredim, which is what we call ourselves, and other Orthodox Jews, other observant Orthodox Jews, I, I think I'd just say we are more traditional. It's a, it's a spectrum. It's not a, a, a binary. And uh, we just, the, the word ultra, the prefix ultra just uh, Let me ask you, that sounds lovely to me, but then I come across this question. You know, I spent the long weekend at my in-law's house, and my mother-in-law... My sympathies. 
I know it. You know, there's some some liquor involved. I don't in know them, so I, I shouldn't say that. So my mother-in-law is a, is a lovely woman, uh, and yet when the subject of Haredi's comes up, uh, she seems to get animated in a special way, and I don't think she's alone <laughs> among secular Jews. I think there's uh, among many, many, many of us non traditional Jews, there is a real animosity. Could you explain that? Are you thinking about that? I think about it it all the time. (laughs) Where does it come from? You're in fact Uh, I live it. Why do I I hate you so much? I I think it's it's the same place where we find um, anti-black racism or anti-Hispanic racism. It's generalizing. There are Haredim who are not good people, as there are non-Haredim who are not good people and people of every religious stripe you could imagine who are not good people. For some reason, uh, when people have a psychological need to vilify someone, they tend to generalize. So I think it's just generalizing unfairly and thinking about a particular type of person and then expanding that in one's mind to to apply to all the people who look like or who go through their days like that person goes through his day. Uh, it's just unfair. It's, it's but why biased. is the rage focused specifically on you? What is it about, you know, observant Jews well, that I don't draw want, so much ire? I don't want to play psychologist, but there are people who will claim that there's a certain amount of Jewish guilt there. You know, after all, we're the most Jewish-looking people, which doesn't mean necessarily that we're the most Jewish-acting or the most Jewish-thinking people, but... We do look Jewish. You gotta gotta admit that. You know. I, I will admit. Okay. That. Well, then we can all agree on that. So uh, it be, we become a good good target for anybody who feels a little bit um, how should I put it inadequate with regard to their own observance. All of us should, of course, feel that way, but uh, some people <laughs> feel it more than others. And uh, I, I think that maybe there's some truth to that theory that uh, people they want to take they want to show that listen, he's no better than I am. She's no better than I am. As a matter of fact, she's a lot worse, and that makes me feel better. And uh, you know, I think that's the source of some of the animosity. So let's—I have one, one, one more question. Let's let's flip this this right now. And you know, no one's listening. We could we could okay. talk completely. Good, honestly. I'm glad to, glad to hear it. Um, when you look at some of these Jews, uh, young people, probably without a lot of education, probably without a lot of you know respect or sympathy or knowledge, what do you really feel? Wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about Haredi Jews? No, no, I'm, I'm uh, uneducated, when you, when unknowledgeable, at, young, at, at, us. At, at a secular Jew, when you look at us, basically. Idiots like us. Idiots like us. Okay. What does the, that make you feel? This is going to sound corny, but I promise you it's true. I feel love. I feel concern for, not sympathy for necessarily, but concern for, I, I want to I meet the person. I want to know the person. I want to interact with the person. Not to change the person. This is a big argument I have with some people I know in, in Kiruv, in Outreach. It's like they would like to get brownie points. I made this guy, you know, Shomer Shabbat. I made this person start eating kosher. That shouldn't be the goal. It's a nice goal, and if it happens, wonderful. Kalakavod, as we say. But if it doesn't happen, it's no less valuable to connect. And I always feel like I want to connect with another Jew, no matter where he or she is. And I've been privileged to have some wonderful relationships with people who are totally from in the field from where I am. And who I, who I consider to be friends of mine, and I think they consider me to be their friend. And you know, we we argue, you know, we insult one another in a jocular way, and uh, we don't uh, we don't have any problem with with discussing serious issues or f- frivolous ones. So, I have sort of a different experience. I mean, I have a very fully formed sense of my own Judaism. It's important to me. I can articulate it. I um, to myself at least. Um, but it doesn't look like someone else's. And I always get the sense if I see someone who's more religious, maybe it's my own internalization, but I get the sense it's like my Judaism isn't as good. Or like, and I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of every single observant person, but I mean, is there that sense of like, 
oh, she eats bagels and lox, she's not really Jewish, or without thought to this this idea that, you know, a lot of secular Jews do have these pretty serious, I, I, you know, understandings of their own Judaism. Uh, I can't, as you said, I can't speak for anybody but myself, but I don't belittle anybody's, um, if a person's grappling with Jewish identity and it means something to them, then to me, I can't ask more than, from, from a Jew than that. And if a person has, you know, a black hat and a long beard, and he's not doing that, and he's not thinking about it, so I, I feel a little bit uh, sorry for him or her. I mean, in the religious tenets, you have that idea, so you can't get better than that. The religion itself teaches that a Jew has a particular responsibility to another Jew, and it doesn't make a distinction about whether that Jew is a fully observant one or a less observant one. If it's a Jew who has, uh, you know, abandoned all connections to the Jewish people and become a a Christian or a Zoroastrian or something and is out worshiping idols somewhere, um, there could be, uh, there are certain sanctions, so to speak, that allow one to see him as not, as, as, as having opted out of the, out of the tribe. Okay, but I cut you off because you have been very outspoken saying that it's very important in terms of Israeli immigration and who counts as a Jew, that it be uh, not only someone who's Jewish on the mother's side, but that it be by orthodox definition. In other words, conversions by conservative rabbis, no matter how serious the pupil, no matter how learned, they shouldn't count. And that does seem to write some people out of Some would say that that is not the most broad-minded or that's not the best definition of who's a Jew. I, I don't see a contradiction there at all because we're, not ta- we're talking about whether someone becomes a Jew there. We're talking about a conversion. Um, when, I would never see a conservative Jew born to a conservative Jewish mother as being anything other than a full-fledged Jew. But we talk about not people, but things. It's a thing called conversion. And in my belief system, which I would, would posit is the Jewish belief system, there are rules that allow for this seemingly illogical possibility that someone who's not born as part of a family can become part of that family. I mean, is there anything more absurd than that? I can't become a, uh, an Asian as much as I might want to be. I can't become a black. I once wanted to become a black. One of my best friends when I was growing up was a black kid, and I liked him so much. But I tried, tried, it didn't work, you know? I don't know why. But there's no mechanism for that. There is a mechanism for a non-Jew becoming a Jew, but it has its rules, like any scientific uh, um, morphing would have its rules. If the rules are not kept and are not kept carefully, so then what you have is, uh, well, people going about their merry way converting people, not according to halakha, according to Jewish law. And then you have a subset of the Jewish people that, in the eyes of many Jews, are not really part of the Jewish people. There's no ill will toward them, but there is a, uh, a distinction made that these are not really Jewish people. And sociologically, down the line, that causes and can cause and has caused all sorts of tragedies of people discovering suddenly that they weren't Jewish. I, I know of, uh, I had a student in California many, many years ago, a high school student, who discovered um, she, she went to a religious school, a high school that I was teaching at. She discovered um, as she was about to leave for a religious seminary in Israel that she wasn't Jewish. Her grandmother told her on her deathbed that she had been converted not halachically, but by a former rabbi back in the early Yeah, but 1900s. the answer to that is for you to say, as a rabbi, say, but you are. No. You, you could have solved that for no, her. I, I mean, that. this is somebody who grew up it. Jewish, felt that she was Jewish, her grandmother no. felt she was Jewish, <laughs> and you could have said, it's the spirit, not the letter. No, I didn't say Gig that. Is it. What I said was, <laughs> let's, let's, con- let's go through a conversion. Do you want to or do you want to remain a non-Jew? We asked her that, and she says she didn't hesitate. Uh, she'd been educated as a Jewess, 
And she said, I want to become a Jew. You just said Jewess. I love it. Because we're bringing that word back, actually. Oh, you should. should. I specifically Mm -hmm. am. It's in fact, better than sisterhood. I like Jewess. Jewess, yeah. Okay, anyway, yeah. So what if she had said, you know, I have the, my grandmother had a reform conversion. Mm -hmm. I am Jewish. Mm -hmm. I don't actually want that. That's her choice. You know, I don't judge other people's choices. But she couldn't have married your son. Uh, No. She couldn't, she couldn't become a Shafra. No, I I wouldn't (laughs) have allowed, I wouldn't have allowed, I mean, I would have asked my son if he wanted to marry a (laughs) non-Jew. From from what I know of my sons, I think they probably would have said, I would find another shidduch for me, you know. I know we have a goy to get to. As yes, we do, as we so do final question. Right? And, and we don't, I can take off my arm and play that role if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, we, the goy has questions for us, which we would, oh, I love, oh. we would love for you to, to be present for us. So, so quickly, if, if there was one thing, one sort of quick flash point that you could get every non-traditional, secular, you know, pork-loving uh, you know, uh, Jew. I don't need pork, but that's that's all you. And that's you. all me. That's all you and you. Uh, but okay, to, to understand <laughs> um, ab- about traditional Jews sure like I yourself, don't. just one thing that you could automatically switch and fix. What would it be? Is there such a thing? Um, I think I'd have to be very, um, very vague about this and say just recognize that there's a human being underneath that that get up that's not much different from you as you think. Obviously, we're different. But we're not as different as you think. I think that's uh, that's the key to solving a lot of problems is for people to recognize that other people are not necessarily what you project them to be, but that they're maybe more similar to you than you suspect. Hallelujah. And now, our world-famous featured Gentile of the Week. This week, we welcome Alex Sheshanoff. He is the author of the new book, Nine Steps to Giving Up Everything. So you, too, can move to the South Pacific, wear a loincloth, read 100 books, diaper a baby monkey, build a bungalow, and maybe, just maybe, fall in love, asterisk, individual results may vary. Did I do that, <laughs> did I do that well, Alex? That was perfect. <laughs> okay. So last I saw you, because we're old friends, you were living in Alaska. Uh, remember we bumped into each other in the bookstore <laughs> in Anchorage. Am I right about that? <laughs> good memory. Good memory. Had you already been to... So tell us about the... Like, had you just gotten back from this trip to the South Pacific that you've now written about? Had you not left for it? Give us... Tell us the story. Yeah, I... Uh, at one point after college, when you you and I were in college together, and, and then afterwards I, I moved to this little island in the in the Pacific called Yap uh, with the 100 books I was most embarrassed not to have read. Uh, and uh, And then I was out there for about... A year and a half, and then uh, then I came back, but not all the way back. I ended up moving to Alaska uh, with a girl, uh, a woman who I who I would later marry, who I met out in uh, out in the Pacific, and and that's when uh, I ran into you at the bookstore. To be clear, the the woman you met on Yap was not a a native Yaplander, right? She was she was actually a Jew, <laughs> a Jewish lawyer from San Diego. <laughs> and you both happened to be on the South Pacific atoll of Yap. Um, yeah, she was she was out there working for uh, for the Supreme Court. We're actually on an island called Palau, and uh, we met on a on a full moon kayak ride, and and uh, it was it was completely dark when we met. It was a little bit like meeting somebody in a, in a confession booth. Not that I meet a lot of people in confession booths, Mark. Not anymore. <laughs> That's the craziest story I've ever heard. But you actually took a hundred books with you, like in your backpack. It, it turns out that a hundred books are really heavy, and so I brought twenty. In a in a like a flight attendant like wheelie bag, and then had my mother mail me the the other eighty. What was the biggest disappointment of all the titles? Well, I, okay, I know complaining about Moby Dick is like 
no, I complaining hate it, that, like there's traffic in LA. <laughs> 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 right? that, but I, I really did want that whale dead by the end. <laughs> what was the most pleasant uh, surprise, or which one did you love the most of the hundred? Um, I ended up uh, really loving a book called uh, The Hedgehog and the Fox, which you guys may be familiar with. Um, it's an essay by Isaiah Berlin who says there are two kinds of people, um, b- basically people who find everything interesting and those who find just one central idea interesting. And it really helped me sort of understand myself a little bit better. All right. So the book came out last week. Have film rights been sold? No, they're, they're still available. Still available, if guys, okay. If you guys want to chip in. Okay. <laughs> um, so you had a question for, for us, for our internationally renowned panel of Jewish experts. What was your I, question about Yiddishkeit for us? Okay, this is my question. So one, uh, a couple years back, I was standing on a street corner in San Diego, and I looked up and I noticed uh, like a fishing line uh, wrapped around some, uh, some telephone poles that was going across the street, and they seemed to go on forever. And... Apparently, this is something called a. I'm not going to get this right. A roof, a roof. Accent on the first. Summer. What What is that? I mean, what like what's what's going on, guys? Okay, so as we have a rabbi in the room, which we don't always, Rabbi Avi, uh, what is an eruv? Um, fishing wire, just as he said. And uh, should I spin a real good yarn and and get the guy to misunderstand everything and tell him that it has to do with some... <laughs> That's what we do every oh, week. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to be straight because you know, I'm wearing my, my rabbinic garb. So, um, On the Sabbath, among the many, many, many things that a, uh, an observant Jew is not permitted to do is to actually carry an object um, more than a few inches in a uh, public domain. It's a very complicated set of laws here, but the bottom line is that in order for anybody to be able to carry a, uh, a book or to push a stroller, there has to be some symbolic enclosure that allows um, the domain to be perceived in the eyes of the Jewish law as a, uh, as an, as a uh, private property. And um, anything that is shaped like a door, even if it's invisible, believe it or not, uh, is good enough to create this domain. And if you look closely at those wires, you'll see that they are atop a pole. It could be a uh, utility pole. It could be a a jury-rigged pole that was put up specifically for this purpose. But there's usually like a nail or something sticking out of the top of the pole. And this wire goes above it. That creates what's called a figurative door. And if you have a bunch of these figurative doors enclosing an area, you can carry in that area. And that's why you'll find that um, religious Jews uh, tend to be pushing baby carriages and carrying books on the Sabbath in uh, religious communities where there's enough of an interest to create such a structure. But arrows make people mad. You either don't notice them if they don't, if they don't apply right. to your life, right? Like you, you might see it, you might look up and wonder what it is. But arrows actually get people really, really they, riled up because they say, why is the municipality putting up these wires to let Jews do this specific thing. So people get really, really, there's a lot of heated battles, I think, one in West Hampton and one in Miami Beach about people who don't want Arabs in their community for whatever. invisible fishing line really, you know, (laughs) fucks up the scenery. And on the Lower East Side, where one particular rabbinic dynasty says you can't have an Arab, families don't stay because once you get above one or two kids and you need to be pushing strollers and hefting babies and stuff, the lack of an Arab means they all move to Riverdale. That's very true. And that's another, another reason why it's true that some some non-Jews resent this is because they don't want the neighborhood to go. You know, if you put the, up an arrow, you get Jews. You get many Jews. You That's many, what's happening uh, not, in West Hampton Not now. just Jews. Put up a fishing line. The, God the forbid you'll get people to look like <laughs> Exactly. I mean, That's the you kind of... That? <laughs> but the funniest thing is most people don't even notice arrows. And it's like you've stepped into this world where all of a sudden you're like, wait, what is that 
almost invisible the line. And now you have though? this crazy story of people getting mad about fishing line and, you know, it actually... The amazing thing is that, and, and this is a job I deeply want, although I'm totally not qualified to have, there are Aruv checkers. There are people, right, who drive Indeed. every morning at dawn to see that the Aruv is intact. Could you imagine the zen of that particular <laughs> job? You just, like, look at the semi-invisible fishing line in the sky. It's amazing. I should, How I do should, you become an Aruv observer? I will suggest your name next time Could uh, you? I'm approached for a... Uh... Thank you. It's, if you can get six foot five, 340-pound Aruv checkers, you've got more power... Uh, in your community than I have in, in mine. No one would mess with the air of it under my watch, I promise you. He is an IDF veteran. Hey, Alex, what are you working on now? What's the next book? Where are you going to move to for the next book? Oh, gosh, thanks. Thanks for asking, Mark. Um, I am, I'm working on a, just a series of articles. I, I think I'm maybe going to write a, an, an, at least an essay or an article about, uh, about walls and how we, uh, we want them to work, but they never actually do work. Well, uh, like Arabs. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Try Arabs. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us. Say hi to your Jewish bride uh, for us. And uh, we're all going to go read Nine Steps to Giving Up Everything, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, and uh, you'll join us again, yes? Yes, of course. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, so instead of prayers for the week, it's it's the new year. And uh, do we have any New Year's resolutions for uh, for our, our the unorthodox uh, community? I, I do. Um, this year, I resolved to do my best uh, to try and forgive uh, my friends and colleagues, although so many of them are so profoundly wrong about almost everything, but I will be better and more accepting and more loving. So of this them. is not forgiving for this year. This is forgiving for this next is year. True, true, Kol Nidre fashion. I forgive them from this Yom Kippurim until the next Yom Kippurim. It's big of you. My resolution is to live with more intentionality, which is a new word that I love. Um, a new word for me, not a new word. I don't know. Um, it's on Wikipedia. So this morning I went to put in a con. I sort of was like, should I wear glasses or contacts? I'm, you know, on the way on the way to the studio. I put. In, I sort of was like, okay, maybe I'll put in a contact. It broke in my eye all of a sudden, and my schedule was completely off. I had to wait, try and fish the contact out of my eye, and it was like, had I only just thought for one second more about whether I wanted to wear contacts or glasses, I probably would have just grabbed glasses. That's my all resolution. Right. Good luck with that. Thank you. Mine is uh, is to only pick the fights that matter. I've picked some stupid fights lately, and I and I thought that I had vanquished that habit back in high school, but it pops up. It's whack-a-mole. It's like sometimes I find myself, like, I recently went to my poker game having sworn to myself, I'm not going to be argumentative tonight and pick stupid fights. I, I felt it in me, and then I went there and I did it anyway. Where is your poker game, and how do we get there? That's for next time. Uh, thanks so much. We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel... Send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We might read them on the air. You can also send us a voice memo to play on the air. That's unorthodox at tabletmag.com. This podcast is a production of Tablet Magazine, produced by Julie Subrin, with super helpful assistance from Sarah Ivry. Our rabbinic supervision this week was by our own Avi Shafran, who's responsible for all of the content on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. Check them out on the web. And uh, to get our newsletter, just shoot an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and, you know, we'll, we'll decide if you're worthy. Uh, thanks so much. We'll be here again next week. Have a happy New Year. Shana Tavah.